Off you go. Well, friends, this morning we're considering or continuing our series to the book of First Thessalonians. You'll notice that we sort of slow down in these verses here in First Thessalonians five. That's where we'll be this morning. First Thessalonians chapter five. Uh, if you're new to the Christian faith, those big numbers is the chapter. The little numbers are the verses. First uh, Thessalonians is in what we call the New Testament. So. Uh, the man that wrote this is a man by the name of Paul. Paul was commissioned by Christ himself to go out and start churches, and he's writing a letter to one of these letters or one of these churches that he started. So these are, we understand this, that Christ is king, and that Christ, therefore, his word is our authority, and so we're just walking right through it to try to consider Christ's good authority for us. And again, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Just verse 14 today. But this past Monday, uh, you all should know, right, our country celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And while I don't do this every single MLK Day, most MLK Days in recent past, I'll I'll read at least some, if not all, of the letter from a Birmingham jail that, uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote. And sometimes, like this past Monday, I'll take a paragraph of that and I'll read it at the dinner table and talk about it with our family. We just sort of work through it and see what he's saying and what it meant and the like. And so this letter is great fodder for Christians because uh, it's by Martin Luther King. He's he's writing and he's writing to some white pastors that that had communicated disgust for his peaceful protests. He's writing to them. These are white pastors that didn't like what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing. And in this letter, there's a couple things that he says that help us think about what we'll think about from 1 Thessalonians 5. So let me read just a little bit. It'll, it'll kind of get us going and seeing what 1 Thessalonians 5 is going to teach us. Uh, MLK said, quote, The early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. He goes on to say, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering an outright rejection. And so friends, we come this morning to a passage where Paul instructs the church, people of otherwise goodwill. He instructs us to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. He instructs us to be, uh, to change the environment around us for good and not to reflect the evil. He has us to, to not be silent, to not be lukewarm, but instead to live in the power and the peace of the gospel as we, as a church family, make our way home to heaven. Here it is, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's our passage this morning. Big idea. 
uh, young people, I changed the big idea, so sorry. Uh, but uh, here's the big idea. This is sort of what it's going to be saying. This is what we're going to be thinking about. This idea kind of encapsulates everything below it, and that is Jesus' words in John 13. They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That's the big idea. They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. How do we love one another? Well, we'll get those instructions this morning. And by that love for one another, we then show that we are the disciples of Christ. That's what we're going to see. Six points this morning. Uh, We're going to move through them efficiently. Here's the first. Look to your reward, Christian. Look to your reward. This command here, these commands from the Apostle Paul, guys, these are not in isolation. These commands are not in isolation. They do not exist in a vacuum. They are inextricably tied to everything that's going on around it. So from chapter 4, verse 13, down to chapter 5, verse 11, Paul has labored to help the church understand the return of Christ. He's coming. He's telling them Christ is coming. He will return bodily. With him comes peace for those that are in Christ, justice for those that aren't. He's just instructed in that. And then we get this practical counsel in verse 12 down to verse 22. Then he comes back to this notion of the return of Christ in verse 23 and 24. And so the commands of Christ are built upon the promise of Christ's future return to establish on earth as it is in heaven. And so thus these calls in verse 13 to be at peace among yourselves. That he literally just, that just came out of his mouth. Be at peace in the church. He's writing to the church. Be at peace among yourselves. And so heaven is eternal peace with God and with one another. And so the church is to be a community of peace. And therefore all the commands that we'll consider here this morning are done in light of what Christ has done to give us peace with God at the cross. It's done, right, these commands are done in light of the, how Christ's death, burial, resurrection, His ascension sends the Spirit to live within us so that we can have this peace and enjoy that peace. And these commands are also done in light of what Christ will do when He returns. So all these commands are in light of those realities. And so as it was for Christ, right, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. So it is for us. We, the joy set before us, this future light of heaven, so may we do what God has called us to do. Heaven is our vision in light of these verses. Heaven is our vision. Heaven is our reward. Eternal life with Him of whom we love on an earth restored alongside His blood-bought people. This is what we anticipate. This is where we're headed. And so as it was with the Israelites of old that were delivered by the blood of an unblemished lamb, right, and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, making their way to the promised land, so it is for us. We have been bought by the blood of an unblemished land named Christ. And we are wandering now uh, in the wilderness, making our way towards heaven. And we can be confident. Look at verses 23 and 24. This is where he's going. We can be confident we'll get home. God, the God of peace, will cleanse us. He will return. He will surely do it. We will get home. And have that eternal peace. So that's the first thing we'll consider. As we think about these commands, look to your reward. But secondly, remember you play a role in the family. Christian, remember you play a role in the family. Look at verse 12. He says there, we ask you, brothers, verse 14, we urge you, brothers, 
The word in the original there, if I can get nerdy on you a little bit, makes us to, uh, allows us to translate that brothers and sisters. In fact, if you have a Christian Standard Bible uh, or a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that actually translates it that way. And that's probably a more faithful translation. The ESV just puts brothers there. But in other words, the point is, the reason why we bring this out is he's addressing the brothers and the sisters. He's not just addressing the pastors. He's addressing the whole church. And then not only is he addressing the whole church, so that's the context, but he's also addressing the, fact, the church, and he refers to them as a family, right? Brothers and sisters. We're a family. We have the same father. We have the same brother in Christ. We have the same home in heaven. And so therefore... Since he's addressing this to all of us, since we are a family, we all, like real families, have a role to play. Paul is asking and urging everyone in the church, family, towards these things here in verses 12 to 22. He calls the entire church, not just the leaders, not just the really mature, not the guys that are just sort of really bought into the church. No, all the brothers and sisters, verse 12, to respect those that labor among you and esteem them highly in their work because of their work and love because of their work. And verse 14, he calls everyone in the church to maintain that peace that Christ has purchased that we're supposed to enjoy. He calls everyone in the church to maintain that peace by being light to the community through our admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, and being patient with everyone. Not only, not, this urging is not just for the leaders. It's for everyone. The work that is to be respected and esteemed as a pastor is our work in trying to help you do this stuff, to equip you, to teach you, to pray with you, to do this work that we're going to be considering this morning, which is why our church covenant reads as it does. We will work for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will gladly cooperate with and submit ourselves to the elders of the church, which is for our good. We will walk together in brotherly love. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and bear one another's burdens and sorrow. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world. We will together work for a faithful evangelical ministry. This is why that's in our covenant right over here. We will all be working towards these ends. These commitments to God and these are commitments to one another. They are simply learning how to live out. These things that Paul's writing us about here. So if we're going to enjoy, if we're going to enjoy the peace that Christ has purchased in ourselves as a church family, if we're going to enjoy that peace, we're going to have to labor to look to our reward that is coming. We, and then secondly, we can't just assume that somebody else will do this work. Right? We can't assume that somebody else is going to do this. In fact, Jesus doesn't even give us that option. He saved us, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for good works. Titus 2.14, we are called to be zealous for good works. James says that if you say that you have faith but no works in keeping with that faith, you do not have faith. As Jesus said himself, he doesn't say just you'll know them by their confession. Remember, you'll know my disciples by the way you love one another. You'll know them by their fruits. So this work that we are able, we are about to consider here is from the peace of God in Christ Jesus that he accomplished for us at the cross. Peace with God, peace with one another. We enjoy this peace now looking to our reward as a family. And guys, this is especially true for those of you that are members of this church, right? We can't have 30% of the church doing 70% of the work. We can't do that, right? 
Uh, We need all of you to let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Consumeristic Christianity that just sort of has a nice relationship with God and kind of touches into the the life of the church and touches out as it pleases. That kind of easygoing Christianity is not the way of Christ. Jesus got his hands dirty in a community, in a dirty world. He didn't just sit on the sidelines. He got in the game. So this individualistic Christianity that receives benefits from the church but never actually lives out these one another commands except for the two or three people that you sort of like when you like, friend, that is, first of all, that is not the God that we see in the Trinity. That's not what he does. And then secondly, we learn that is not what heaven will be like. And it's not even for our good. Jesus saved you and equipped you to give and to receive. And Jesus even tells us in Acts 20, 35, it's better to give than it is to receive. And so if you've been doing a lot of receiving with little to no giving, let me invite you back into the family. Come back into the family. He saved you to be part of the family, not just to receive mama's cooking, but to help clean the dishes up, to strengthen the life of the family of Christ together. Helping your brothers and sisters know and enjoy the peace of God. This is for your joy and our joy together as we make our way home to heaven. And so first, remember, Christian, look to your reward as we labor here. Secondly, remember, you were made to play, Christian, a role in God's family. You then ask, okay, what would that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. First off, we see from Paul's commands here in verse 14, you need to warn the lazy. Warn the lazy. ESV puts it this way. It says to admonish the idle. Admonish means to teach. Sometimes can mean to warn. I think in this case it means to warn. You can see that word admonish right back up there in verse 12, right? The elder's task primarily is to admonish, to to teach, to instruct, to warn, to pray. But as you can see, we teach so as, again, to equip you to do the work of admonishing, or in this case, warning those that are idle. You then ask, okay, Nathan, what does idle mean? Great question. I think Paul means idle here in two ways. I'm using the word lazy to describe that. And I think he means laziness in two ways. Lazy is in your vocations and lazy with your lips. I think that's what he means, given the context. As to vocations, we've already gotten hints that some of the church had gotten passive in making a living. You can look back in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul feels the need to remind them how he and the mission team, remember how they worked hard and how they weren't a burden to them when they were preaching the gospel to them. Remember in chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, after encouraging them to love one another, Paul says there to aspire to live quietly and to mind or to tend to your own affairs and to work with your hands, he said so that they would live properly in front of outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, the way in which you guys in the church are not just sort of taken, but you're working with each other, that will then display something about Christ to the world, and you'll have to not be dependent on anyone inside the life of the church. But the the clearest meaning of idle is kind of vocational laziness is in the next letter that he writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 to 12. We'll think about this later this year. Uh, You'll see this on the screen behind me. Paul writes there. He says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from, and think about this, guys, that you keep away from any brother or sister who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Keep away from it. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day. Why, Paul? That we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. In other words, we could have done it. We could have asked for you to give us that. But, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Here's the command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. We see this also in Paul's letter to Timothy. So apparently this is a bit of an issue in the early church when he's sharing there about the people that are truly widows. And he's concerned in 1 Timothy 5 about not being unnecessary burdens to the church because the church has to bear a lot of burdens. And so we can think about it this way. If I can just sort of illustrate this, I won't pick on anybody in the church, but if imagine a member of our church here was really lazy. And so because they were not working, or at least they didn't try to get a try to get work or, or they wouldn't keep work, the church, because they're, we've bound them in, we want to take care of them. And so the church was using some of its benevolence money to take care of, let's say, Bob. Let's call him Bob. Take care of Bob. All right. Now imagine we were doing this, and meanwhile we found out Bob is spending you know, a good chunk of time just playing video games and not really working hard to try to find work or keep work once he got it. And all the while he was saying when we asked him about it, he would, he would appeal to his freedom in Christ and maybe some other tangential thing, right? You can imagine, think about the persons, maybe like yourself, that are working hard to care for your families, care for your neighbors, trying to give to the work of the church. Can you imagine at the next members meeting how it would go when we came up to present the budget and we talked about the fact that our benevolence monies was sort of going away? People would probably go, hey, what about Bob? What is, what is he doing? Right? You can imagine how that would then disturb the peace and the life of the church. There's Paul's concern. Bob's laziness would kind of disturb the peace of the church. And it would also, this is important, guys, it would also, that laziness in vocation and working to make your own living, that also misrepresents God. Right? Because God is a God that what? Works. Right? It also would misrepresent heaven. Remember, we're keeping our eye on heaven. Because guess what, guys? If you don't know this, go read Isaiah 65 this afternoon. In heaven, guess what we will do? Work. But it's going to be a joy. So it's going to be a joy. Go read that, Isaiah 65. It misrepresents heaven because in heaven we will work. And so if you are able to work, you should. Now to be sure, let me be clear about this. Scripture does have people that should truly seek to benefit from the church. That should, to use that language, that should burden the church in that way. Orphans, widows, the responsibly poor, the elderly, the sick. But for most of us, we should be working. That, in a way, preserves peace in the life of the church. Therefore, we should therefore warn those that are lazy, telling them that their lives do not match the example of Christ or his gospel or his people in heaven. Tell them to turn from slothfulness and be above no kinds of work, no matter how it might appear, no matter what it might do to your resume. Tell them to repent of that slothfulness. 
Because all work, no matter what it is, as it is done unto the Lord, is honorable. We can think about this, right? Christ himself, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, washed the feet of his disciples. All work done unto the Lord is honorable. And so we should warn those that are lazy with their vocations. But secondly, you can see there the call in Second Thessalonians 3 to warn the warning towards those that are busy bodies. These are what I'm calling idlers with their lips, slandering, gossiping, lying, complaining about other people inside or outside the church. And I'm sure nobody in here has any testimony of that ever happening in the life of another church. Right? It's so common, sadly, in the life of the church. Thus the need to be warned of it. Paul describes this in 1 Timothy 5, verse 13, referencing idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And so this kind of idleness, friends, needs warning because, again, it disturbs the peace of Christ that we are meaning to enjoy in the life of the church. Proverbs 26.20 puts it like this. It says, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Be the kind of people that doesn't throw wood in fire, wood on the fire of slander and gossip. But instead, be the kind of people uh, that is water to the fires of gossip and complaining and quarreling in the life of the church. And call others to repent of that gossip and that slander. Warn them of words like, let's say, Matthew 7, verse 2 to 3, the words of Christ. Warn them with this one. When Jesus says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so, friends, if you gossip, you slander, you judge, you complain, that, what Jesus is saying, that same standard that you're judging and complaining about, that same standard will be measured back to you. And remember, right, we all have big, giant planks in our own eyes, don't we? Remember, we have those planks in our own eyes. That that should orient our tongues. So if someone says something disparaging or divisive about someone or someone else to you, listen, ask that person if they should be saying such things. And I don't know if you've been in this case. I've struggled with this myself where I've started to say something. I'm like, I don't know if I should say it. Just don't say it. Right? Just don't say it. Just swallow those words and tell the person, listen, just, just don't say anything if you're struggling with whether or not to say it. One of the principles I like to keep in mind is I'm not going to share anything uh, with you that I would not say about someone else to their face comfortably. So when people do that, though, as Paul says, to warn them, right, call them to repentance where necessary, and then tell them to go and reconcile with that person. We even have in 1 Timothy 5, uh, if a charge is made against an elder, Uh, against a pastor. Paul gives really specific examples about how that should go down. There should be two or three witnesses, right? Because they have their job because of their character. And so if disparaging remarks are being made about their character, there should be other witnesses so as to bring them down just in case it is true. But the evil one means to divide us, beloved. He means to divide us by separating us into nice little tribes of different personal preferences and likes and then just throw rocks at each other. That's what he would love to have us do. Social media has not helped in this. It's making it even easier to throw kind of gas on these kinds of gossipy, idling fires. And we're reminded of the words of Jesus who said, not Abraham Lincoln, 
A house divided against itself will not stand. Well, Lincoln said it, but it was Jesus' words first. Pretty sure that's true. So when you're tempted to be idle in these ways, friends, don't do it. Believe the best about one another. Do as Ephesians teaches us to do. And use your words to build one another up, not tear them down. And then seek one another out face to face. Be reminded of the words of James, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. How a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. So, beloved, as we sojourn on towards heaven, working together as a family, trying to accomplish, right, as best we are able, the glories of Christ, to image that to others and to one another and to each other. Warn people that are idle in their vocations or in their lips. These are dangerous tools to disturb the peace of the church, and it creates fire in the church, which is supposed to be a place of peace. Which leads us to the next point. Comfort the discouraged. Comfort the discouraged. The English Standard Version, what we use here, it says to encourage the faint-hearted. But we need to, uh, it's my ways of putting that, encourage or comfort the discouraged. We get these, right, disturbances of peace. Can be somebody's lazy with their lips, somebody's lazy with their vocations. Well, I mentioned that example with Bob, right? Disturbances come, and what happens? We get discouraged, don't we? Our hearts get faint-hearted. I met with a brother this week, this past week, not from our church, but from another church, where I just prayed with him because that happened to him. He had some idle sort of tongue stuff happen, and he was just very discouraged. And I tried to encourage his faint-heartedness, tried to build him up. Or we can become faint-hearted or discouraged by uh, the, the people that hate the gospel, what they might do to us. Let's not lose sight of the fact that in Thessalonica, remember, this letter is written to a new church that is experiencing all kinds of persecution and suffering because of their faith in Christ. And so we can imagine maybe some people that Paul are writing to here have lost a member of their family or a loved one because of their allegiance to Jesus. Or maybe somebody had gotten sick uh, because of their uh, love for Jesus and so they got thrown in jail or something of the like. Uh, something like this. We need to encourage them. Or we might be faint-hearted or discouraged because life's just hard, right? Life is just hard. Maybe our kids don't make the best decisions. Maybe the demands of life are upon you, and life is just hard. Young people, maybe you didn't make a team that you want you tried out for. I can still, I still think of it like yesterday when I didn't make the seventh grade basketball team, partly because I was four foot two. This is incredible. It was incredibly discouraging to me. It really was. It was meaningfully just, I still think about it. You can think about people, maybe young people, people in your school that maybe are not kind to you. Maybe they find out that you go to church and they make fun of you. But for the rest of us, all of us, right, life is difficult. Cancer, car accidents, global pandemics, floods, wars. Life is hard and since it is we need to be the place in the church that people can come to be comforted. We should be that kind of place. God sent the Holy Spirit to apply the benefits of the gospel to those of us that believe. Think about that. And what does Jesus call that one that he sends us? He calls the Holy Spirit what? A comforter, right? And so therefore, if you are in Christ, you cannot say, well, I'm above the sort of ministry of comforting the discouraged. No, you have the comforter inside of you. A comforter resides in all of us that believe. And therefore, we should be able to then comfort those that are discouraged or faint-hearted. We can think about the ministry of Christ that was so wonderfully like this. 
Jesus was God coming near to us, wasn't he? To comfort us in our pains and our sorrows. We saw him do this time and again through the scriptures, being a place of comfort to those. Right? One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is meeting with the Pharisees, right? and this sinful woman, probably a prostitute, comes in her tears amidst that meal with the Pharisees that, that obviously, as Luke 7 thought, they, were, they did not like this woman. They thought that she was terrible and the like. She had so much courage to go into that dinner meeting. Why? Because she had to be convinced that she knew she would be comforted in Christ. Are you the kind of person where somebody that is so discouraged they feel comfortable in coming to you like that? We can think about the times that Jesus touched the wounds of the sick and healed them. Came near to them. Or of course in the gospel of Jesus Christ we can see how our hearts were comforted in Jesus taking Our sin upon his back, bearing the shame, taking our shame, taking our condemnation on himself. Why? That all of our guilt would be pressed as far away. The east is from the west. But those of us in Christ, we don't have to deal with the guilt of our sin anymore. He deals with it. In that, right, that gospel, our hearts are so encouraged, so comforted, knowing that God's condemnation will not land upon us because Jesus took it from us. Jesus, as man, even experienced discouragement, didn't he? He knows this faint-hearted personally. Isn't that amazing to think about? That the God that Christians believe in doesn't just know from a distance what it's like to be faint-hearted, but he knows it experientially. We can think about how Jesus uh, wept with Mary and Martha at the death of his close friend, Lazarus. He knew the disappointment of Jerusalem, right? Right? When he stood and looked at Jerusalem and said how they killed the prophets and they wouldn't come up under the Lord. He knew what it meant to be abandoned, Jesus did, when all of his disciples ran away from him at his darkest hour. And he did all of this ministry willingly. Willingly he entered into all this. Because of the prospect of making sinners into saints by his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Jesus comforted the discouraged. And he has empowered us that are in him to do the same work with that same spirit, bringing about comfort to those that need it. And again, I recognize that there may be some of us maybe better equipped to do this than others. But again, if you are in Christ, this is a critical way that you show the light and life of Christ by weeping with those that weep, by praying with those that are burdened, by supplying their needs throughout. And I've watched this. One of the joys that I get to have as a pastor that calls us into these corporate commands is to watch you guys do this time and again. I thank God for the ways that you have come close to those that have experienced miscarriages. For those that have lost loved ones, how you guys came around them and loved them, brought meals to them. The ways in which you guys uh, have helped people through job loss. The ways that you guys have helped people through family stressors. You've come around them and loved them time and again. I've watched them. how we didn't organize this ministry. You guys just, I, I saw, for instance, that the, the, the Bergeners had their baby. And the next thing I see is Christy Coster going, all right, meal train. That's you guys loving those. They're, she's not discouraged. She's very happy. But nevertheless, you know, it was, I'm sure it's an encouragement to her to see that meal show up. You guys do this time and again. The ways that you text the Bible to one another, reminding them of the truth. The ways that you take people on walks and just try to 
walk with them and listen to them. The way that you invite people over for meals to, again, just listen to one another's struggles and difficulties because you know that they're going through stuff and just praying with them. And so Restoration Church, as Paul said to Thessalonica, I say to you, you're doing this work, but I urge you to do it all the more, all the more as we make our way home to heaven. Because we are a family. Soon enough, we will enter a place. Think about this, guys. We will enter into a place where we won't have to do this work anymore. We're going to get to a place in heaven. We're going to make our way to the promised land wherein we won't have to encourage the faint-hearted any longer. There will be no more tears. And so, church family, comfort the discouraged. Warn the lazy. Comfort the discouraged. Next, serve the weak. Serve the weak. The ESV puts it there, help the weak. But I like replacing this word help with the word serve because it not only communicates the need to do something for those that are weak, but it communicates the posture with which we are to do it. Right? We are not elites as Christians. We are not elites that throw a few crumbs at the weak. No. Christ served us while we were weak. Amen? Right? So true. We served us while we were weak. We, we tend to hide it. Maybe sometimes you ought not. Right? Do not hire, hide your weakness in the life of this gathering. Right? But the fact is, all of us are weak in some capacity. Christ served us while we were weak. In Him we are strong. And so we ought to be serving those that are weak. But what exactly, you might be asking, does Paul mean by weak here? That's a great question. And after study and prayer... And reading all kinds of different commentaries and talking to other people, I'm still not quite sure what he means. Um, it could mean moral, moral weakness, could mean physical weakness, could mean spiritual weakness. And the fact is, Scripture references all of those. So I just throw them all in the pot, right? So I trust maybe, sort of like constitutional law, he just sort of throws them, he's a little broad on this, so as to include all of these. As a matter of fact, there was, I was even thinking about this morning, in my time of prayer, just going through the sermon, this passage in Romans 15, when Paul says, we who are strong have an, listen to the word, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us, notice he's, he let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And then look, notice how he does this. He, he appeals to Christ and he goes right to the gospel. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And when we see, by the way, in Acts chapter 2, as that was happening, the glory of Christ is proclaimed and people are intrigued, serving the weak. So for those that are uh, weak in obeying Jesus' moral commands, Think about that just for a second, right? For those that are weak in obeying Jesus' moral commands, right? Whatever Jesus says to do and you're just weak you're towards obeying those things, be reminded this morning of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that teaches us love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. 
That is such, that is such a needed word in our culture. We're, we're taught in our culture, right, love is just affirming whatever you want to do. That's not love, according to Jesus. Love is not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth. So we love people by calling people away from sin and back into the righteousness of Christ. That's how Jesus loves. We love people by serving people who, uh, who keep going back to the vomit of sexual immorality or greed or sinful anger or false worship. The other things, maybe, that God hates. We serve them by loving them enough to rebuke them and call them into the light of Christ. Reminding them that Christ has died. Listen, Romans 6. Christ has died that sin might not have dominion over you. Reminding them that heaven has no trace of immorality, but only holiness. Calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. Calling them to be strong, not in themselves, but strong in Christ. Praying with them. Holding them accountable to the good way of the Lord. Serve those that are morally weak. Serve those that are spiritually weak. This could be those that labor to live in the assurance of their salvation. I know this is some of you. You constantly live in doubt, wondering if you're really in Christ, questioning yourself. Or this could be those who have difficulty getting on in the disciplines of the faith, having trouble kind of creating a rhythm of prayer and meditation on the Word. Or it could be those whose faith is susceptible to false teachings of various kinds, not rooted in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. All of us could identify with spiritual weaknesses. Everybody in this room, myself included, has spiritual weaknesses. That's why, right, we need this gathering. That's why Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of summer in the habit of doing. Why? Because he knows we're all spiritually weak and we need this gathering to come back together. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to know where we're going, to answer, to speak into those spiritual weaknesses, to encourage one another up into them. Serve the spiritual weaknesses of one another. And then serve those who are physically weak. Those that are physically weak. We could think here, right, of, of babies and the elderly, or those that are, have debilitated sickness. Uh, like the man, we can think in the invalid man in John chapter 5. What an encouragement this was for me to think about this. Jesus, in John chapter 5, the text says, When Jesus saw this invalid man and knew that he had been there for a long time, went to him. And then he asked if he wanted him to heal, be healed. 38 years, this man is invalid. There was something, Jesus passed by tons of people and didn't do anything all the time, presumably. But there was something about it. He went by and saw this invalid man, and it's, the text says he saw him, and he knew that he'd been an invalid for 38 years, and he went to him. So that's a good question for us, guys. Do we see the physically weak around us? Do we see them? And setting aside what Jesus asked, do you want to be healed, right? Just wonder, ask yourself, do you see them as Jesus did? Is the love of Christ so powerfully at work in us that we move towards them and not away from them? Doing what we can to make them smile, to give them something they need, to pray with them, whatever. If we are Christians, we would minister. We would go towards those that are physically weak because that was the ministry of Christ. Remindful, if you didn't know this, that it was Christians that started hospitals. I don't know if you knew that, but it was Christians that started hospitals. It was their burden to start these things because in the ministry of Christ, they saw the weak and they wanted to care for them. And so in the same spirit, may we offer the peace of God to those who are physically weak. 
brothers and sisters, as family members bound for heaven, we as citizens of glory reflect the light of that glory by warning the lazy, by comforting the discouraged, by serving the weak, and perhaps hardest of all, some of you that read the passage, you were like, oh, not this one. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Guys, just think about all this stuff happening in the life of a church. There's a small church here. You can imagine, probably, I'm sure their church was even smaller than ours. You can imagine all this stuff kind of happening. You got some people maybe that are lazy. You got some people that are discouraged. You got some people that are morally, spiritually, or physically weak. You can imagine how difficult it would be to kind of keep the peace of that community. Thus, this call for patience. Guys, we're not going to do this perfectly. We already haven't. I know I haven't done this perfectly. We have different backgrounds. We have different states of maturity. We have different ages. We have different stages. We're going to let each other down. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to be tempted to leave or lash out. But as all of us are weak, we are all also works in progress. Right? Aren't we? So be patient with one another. Be patient with one another. Look again where Paul lands his counsel. He tells us in verse 23 and 24, again, to trust not in ourselves, but in the God of peace to sanctify us completely. So if you're not a Christian or you're not real familiar with the way Christianity works, we don't think that like if we do this stuff, Jesus will love us, right? That's not what this is teaching. He's already meditated on the truths of the gospel. And so we, by the power of the gospel, have the spirit within us to do this work. And so we're just reflecting the citizenship that we already have. We're not trying to achieve it. We already have it. And so therefore, Paul, God's word, Jesus, he knows these things are going to be difficult to live out with one another. And so he calls us as weak people. We're weak. Nathan Knight is weak. And so I look to God to give me strength, to give me that peace, to go and to administer that peace with one another so as to be patient with each other. He is the one that is our peace. He is the one that is patient with all of us. We can think of how the Lord defines himself in Exodus chapter 34. Do you all remember that? For you interns, you should get ready. Exodus 34, right? The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful, God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger. So many people think that the Old Testament is about a picture of this God that's real quick to anger, but God by his own word, testifies that he's slow to anger. I've been working through the book of Ezekiel and my own private devotions, and I am just shocked uh, as I read through this how God is so patient with these people. He goes on and on and on about how awful they are and how many things they've done, but then he just keeps giving them grace and mercy. God is patient. He's slow to anger. And what, we are, what is it we are told of love in 1 Corinthians 13? You all remember this? Love is what? Love is patient. What is the fruit of the gospel in our lives? What's one of the things? Y'all remember this? What's the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Brothers and sisters, be patient with one another. Be reminded of how God was so patient with you in your sin and my sin. How patient He is with us. Some of you need to be patient with yourselves. God, remember, God was patient with you. We remember again that plank in our eyes. So no matter who we are, if we are in Christ, we ought to be patient. We should have long wicks, not short wicks to the bomb. Long wicks. 
We are a community of sinners that are and will be saints, but we are still learning how to live in light of heaven. We are not home yet. We have not yet gotten there. We are, uh, we've got a lot of things, don't we, to unlearn from our former country. Some of you have moved from other countries, right? You have to sort of unlearn what it's like to live in some of those things, to live in this new country. So we're still learning to do the same, learning how to live in heaven. I don't know about some of you, but I've been married for 21 years on Wednesday. And I'm still learning how to love my wife as she deserves. So it is with all of us. We need to be patient with one another. John Newton says it best. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So be patient with one another, beloved, as God has been patient with you. Beloved, the gospel changes us. It has to change us. The gospel changes us and it's preparing us for heaven. And we are a family. We are a community of that change as we make our way towards the promised land. But we've got to illustrate the light of that land now, increasingly illustrating that the closer we get towards it. And every day is one step closer towards heaven, our home. So in our life together, we get to be the light that is coming in the return of Christ. And so, beloved, work out the salvation that God has worked in you by your warning the lazy, comforting the discouraged, serving the weak, and being patient with everyone, knowing Christ will complete what he has begun. And again, we're trusting him to do that as we work it out in each other's lives. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're realizing for the first time that you've never really understood the gospel, maybe you grew up in a church, maybe you sort of are familiar a little bit with the gospel, the gospel. And some of this is sort of sieging upon you. Some of this is sort of showing you, I don't know that I really understood Jesus. I didn't understood Christianity. I didn't really understand the gospel. If that's you, let me invite you to do two things. One, stop where you're at right now and pray and give thanks to God. Give thanks to God that he's revealed these things to you and ask him in that prayer to see and savor more of Christ. And then the second thing I would invite you to do is to come and talk to us to help us so we can help you know how to follow Jesus together. We would love to do that. That would be our joy. Uh, But lastly, let me just say this briefly. Uh, As we go about in our community groups this week, this is going to be a great opportunity to talk about these things, these four things that he mentions here. Uh, So let me encourage you, community group leaders, those of you that are in these community groups, really try to flesh this out, squeeze at this stuff. Try to apply it. What would it look like to do these kinds of things in our life together? What would it look like to help the weak? What would it look like to admonish the idle and the like? But Restoration Church, we are sojourning towards heaven. Our citizenship lies there. And we are a family, an imperfect family, a messy family, but we're on our way. So may we be that city set up on a hill. May we be a light to the world because, as Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. How is it you love one another? Well, here's four ways. Going back to last week's sermon, it goes back to the way in which we see the leadership of the church. And in so doing, as we enjoy that peace of Christ, we so illustrate the glory of Christ and our home in heaven. So may we give ourselves to that work. And I thank God for the ways that you already do.